Good morning, church. It's good. I love hearing that feedback when people say good morning. I, it's so different from Chi Alpha students because we say like, oh, what's up, going on? Hey. And then the older people are like, good morning, and everyone's like, good morning, so good to see you. Well, if you don't know me, my name is Victor, and I'm one of the staff members with Chi Alpha, which is our college ministry at UNI. I'm so excited and honored to be able to be here with you and share this morning. If you're new here, I just want to say again, welcome. Thank you for spending your Sunday morning with us. I'm so glad that you decided to come and be with us, and I would love to get the chance to know you. So this morning, we're going to continue our Gospel of Mark series. We're working verse by verse through the book and coming up on part 50. Part 50. (laughs) Two weeks ago, Pastor Daniel covered the institution of the Lord's Supper, or most commonly known as Communion. We looked at how the crucifixion would essentially bring in this new exodus in which Jesus' blood and his body would save us from slavery and from our sin. Our text from this morning comes from Mark chapter 14, verses 26 through 31. Again, that's Mark 14, verses 26 through 31. So to recap the scene, essentially what's going on is Jesus has just celebrated the Passover feast with his disciples. Essentially, it's this festival in which Israel celebrates being liberated from the slavery in Egypt, when that can be found in the book of Exodus. And as they're sitting around the table, Jesus essentially shifts the focus from what happened, God had done in the past, to what he's now going to do in the future through Jesus' sacrifice and giving up his life. We then read the following conversation, which happens soon after that. So again, Mark 14, verses 26 through 31. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Jesus, we just pray this morning that your spirit would surround us, Jesus, in the middle of all the chaos, in the middle of all the different voices through media, through whatever it might be, Jesus, we pray that today you would surround us, that you would move in this place. We love you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, one of the most famous and most memorable, memorable events of this past century is the emotional and heartbreaking tale of the Titanic. If you don't know the story, if you haven't seen the movie yet, on April 15, 1912, the Titanic, which is this huge luxury passenger, passenger boat, struck a large iceberg in the Atlantic Ocean. In the accident, approximately 1,500 of the 2,000 passengers were killed. And one of the most common questions that people ask when they watch the movie or they hear about the incident is, how could a boat crash into the only iceberg in the entire ocean? There's just one iceberg there. How is it possible they crashed? Why didn't they just move the ship? Well, it's actually not that simple. So there's going to be a picture up here Really blurry, that's great. So, icebergs, if you didn't know, are actually pretty dangerous. Sometimes when icebergs are floating in the water, like in the picture, it's estimated that the part that you can see is actually only 10% of the entire iceberg. Just 10%. 
To give you some perspective, in 1958, one of the largest icebergs ever found, discovered in the North Atlantic, the tip of it, the very part that stuck out, was 551 feet. So imagine if that's only 10% of the entire iceberg. That's roughly the size of a 40-story building. Imagine just what was underneath. On top of that, icebergs, can, when they flip because of them, them melting and begin to break apart, they release energy that can, cross, that can cause tsunamis and even earthquakes. Scientists at the University of Chicago once calculated that a rolling iceberg may release enough energy that's the same or equivalent to an atomic bomb. So with that in mind, how many people in this room would ever look at the top of an iceberg and be like, yeah, I know what the iceberg is. I know the entire thing. By just looking at the very top part, I know, like the back of my hand. Nobody, right? You would never say that. Or imagine if this huge iceberg floated nearby where you lived, if you lived on the coast, and there was a scientist who was trying to study and assess the potential risk and damage that it could cause. Imagine if they just looked at it and just were like, yeah, it's not that big, so I think it should be okay. See ya. I'm assuming most of you would be pretty upset, right? Your life, your family, your home, your livelihood, all of it depends on that information. There could be so much on the line and so many people get hurt. So would you settle for what you see? Would you settle for that? So this morning, I want to ask a question. How well do you think you know yourself? And you're probably thinking, like, what the heck? How do we just get from icebergs to self-awareness? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> just humor me for a little bit. Think through that question for a little bit. How self-aware do you think you are? How well do you know yourself? I want you to imagine that who you are, your entire being, everything about you is like this iceberg floating in the ocean. And if we go back to that same metaphor, what I'm really asking is how much of the iceberg have you actually seen? Have you ever gone beneath the surface, underneath the water, and actually seen what is there? Or have you settled with just looking at the tip? In 2017, psychologist Tasha Yurik, she published a book entitled Insight that dove into this idea of self-awareness. In a series of surveys for her study, she found that 95% of people think that they're self-aware. Can you guess on how much actually many people were? 10 to 15%. 10 to 15% of people truly are. So statistically speaking, we have a church about a run that averages around 200. If 200 people are in this room, 190 of us would answer that we know ourselves pretty well. And in reality, only 20 to 30 of us actually would. So to, to tie it back into the illustration again, roughly 85% of us in this room have seen only the tip of the iceberg, and we believe that we have seen it all. We believe that we understand that there's every, we know everything there is to know. Now this top part, if you relate it back to your personality, it represents the most visible and outermost layer of who you are and that other people know. It's made up of things that you like, your hobbies that you enjoy, the political views that you have. On the negative side, it might include things that you, like addictions, emotional issues, such as anger, bitterness. The fact is that all of these things can be, are visible, but they go in 
much deeper than we can imagine. The problem that we face as human beings is that many of us have not gone beneath the surface. Many of us have settled for just looking at the tip and saying, that's it. That's all there is to know. We believe that the iceberg is really, really small, but underneath it, it expands and goes hundreds of feet below the water. So what does Scripture have to say about this? So let's go back to the text. So Jesus and his disciples are on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's given this revolutionary speech talking about what he's going to do in the kingdom. And they have the very first communion. Imagine being part of that, the very first communion. The atmosphere must have been filled with expectation and wonder as to what God was going to do. And the disciples found themselves at the beginning of something great. And yet, at the height of the story, at the very top of what's going to happen, Jesus comes in with a punch to the gut. After they celebrate and there's all this energy, he says, you will all fall away. You will all fall away. And notice who he's talking to. It's not just a random crowd that had heard about Jesus and wanted to see what all the hype was about. It was not just a group of new converts or essentially new people that started following Jesus. It was the disciples. The men who had spent the last couple of years observing and learning and doing life with Jesus. They had literally just made this huge commitment through communion with Jesus. And yet, after all of that, Jesus knew the reality. So if we keep all of that in mind, the disciples and what they had done the past couple of years, it seems like Jesus' claim is just outright crazy. Like, Jesus, how could you say that? We just spent all this time, we literally gave up our careers and everything that we had, we gave it up for you. What was Jesus doing? The truth is that although the disciples had given up so much to follow Jesus and committed themselves externally, internally, they had major heart issues. Jesus needed to deal with what was inside. They had changed their outward behavior and started doing the Jesus things, such as following him and doing ministry, but inwardly they were full of fears, insecurities, anger, envy, apathy, self-righteousness, and pride. And this points to a much bigger reality and a much bigger principle, which is we all have a shadow side. The idea is that because of the fallen state of the world that we live in, and because sin runs rampant through our world, our natures inside as human beings have been corrupted. There are parts of us who deep down, deep down inside that negatively affect how we view ourselves and also how we view God. These harmful ways of thinking or behaviors have been formed through multiple things, such as our upbringing, our families, our social circles, the media, society, all these different things. The challenge is that the side of who we are is so deeply ingrained in our beings that it may be difficult to change or even know this side of us altogether. And it keeps us from experiencing spiritual and emotional breakthroughs with Jesus. This shadow side it blinds us and keeps us from seeing the truth about who we actually are and who God is. Our shadow side can affect so much of our lives, such as relationships with other people, our relationship with Jesus, our view of ourselves, our habits, our lens of the world, and so much more. Going back to our story, Peter, who outright was just saying, Jesus, no, you're wrong. 
He was such a pivotal part of the church. But throughout all of the Gospels, we constantly see him acting out of emotion. He's constantly angry. He's constantly acting out of fear. He even tries to correct Jesus multiple times. Can you imagine that, trying to correct Jesus? He's driven by pride and self-gain. This often hurts his ability to do ministry, but most importantly, it was keeping him from knowing Jesus on a deeper level. It was keeping him from having the spiritual breakthrough that he needed. So at this point, it might seem like all I'm saying is that we're messed up deep down inside and you actually don't know anything about yourself. But I promise there's hope. So you're wondering, okay, if there's this shadow side that exists inside of me, where do I even start? How do I know what I don't know? The answer is self-awareness. Awareness of who you are and your relationship with Jesus are two aspects that are woven so intricately together, it's impossible to separate them or to think about one without the other. That is why it's so crucial for us to understand who we are. Augustine, the early church father in his book Confessions, wrote this. How can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? And he prayed, grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. The truth is that spiritual formation depends on self-awareness. We have to go deep into who we are. We have to go beyond the 10% that we can see. We have to unpack the layers and the complex thought processes that exist. We have to go deep into our soul and be brutally honest about ourselves. We have to look inwardly because if we want to go deeper in a relationship with God and the people of God, we want to be formed into the image of Jesus out of a love for him. This means that we have to examine our motivations, why we do the things we do, how we handle conflict, how we deal with our emotions, looking back at our childhood and how we were brought up and how our family affected us, our traumas, and our mistakes, and so much more. We cannot leave those things in the dust and say, Jesus has done a new thing. The old is just, uh, it's gone somewhere else. No, those parts still exist within inside of you. So going back to the iceberg illustration, it can be easy to let Jesus touch the 10% that is on the surface. It is relatively easy to let God touch our actions, our conduct. We become overall just nicer people to the public. We routinely come to church and essentially clean up our act. But deep down inside, our roots, our inner being, remain completely untouched by Jesus. So to give you an example, maybe you struggle with alcohol and you come to Jesus and you ask him to heal you. In the moment, it might seem like alcohol is the real problem and you want to deal with that. But in reality, deep down inside, you only drink because it's a coping mechanism to dealing with stress. And that's something that you learn from watching your parents. Out of love and mercy, Jesus will absolutely heal you because he's that good. But the root problem is still there. So maybe you stop using alcohol, but eventually when you find yourself stressed again, you'll turn to something else. Pete Cesaro in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, puts it this way. The problem, however, is that you inevitably find, as I did, something is missing. In fact, the spirituality of most current discipleship models often only adds a protective layer against people growing up emotionally. When people have authentic spiritual experiences such as worship, prayer, 
Bible studies and fellowship, they mistakenly believe they are doing fine, even if their relational life is fractured and their interior world is disordered. Their apparent progress then provides a spiritual reason for not doing the hard work of maturing. They are deceived. The disciples believed that knowing Jesus on the outside and giving the 10% was sufficient. But in reality, they needed to know themselves as well. Another key aspect of self-awareness is emotional maturity. Emotional maturity is a crucial part of spiritual formation. If we want to grow in greater intimacy with Jesus, we have to make a commitment to not only feel what we're feeling, but also learn to process our emotions in a healthy way. Because the reality is, even if you try to deny your feelings, you still feel some way. God created you and I with feelings and with a great purpose. It is a central part of who we are as humans, but at the same time, it reflects God properly when we learn to feel and express our emotions in a healthy way. The truth is, God gets angry. God gets sad. God feels remorse. God feels joy. God gets jealous. All of these things are expressions of God's character. Emotions are the way that our bodies communicate to us, and it's even a way that God will sometimes communicate to you. When you are experiencing and feeling your emotions and understanding what is going on, you are experiencing your true self. The problem is that we often try to neglect our emotions or we don't know how to process them correctly. Part of being self-aware is knowing what emotions you are feeling and knowing how to react accordingly. For example, let's say every time that you have a conversation with someone about your childhood, you find yourself becoming deeply sad or angry. It's a cue that something else is going on. God might want to be telling you something, but if you just ignore the feelings, you'll miss out on what God is trying to do. So let's listen to our feelings and process them. God, why am I feeling the way that I am? What are you trying to speak over my life? So bringing it back to self-awareness, self-awareness and the various techniques we use to cultivate it should show us our fears, our insecurities, our anger, our envy, our apathy, self-righteousness, and other struggles that keep us from loving God to the full extent. Self-awareness is not the ultimate goal. Hear me. It's not just about finding who you are, but it's, it's, the main goal is becoming aware of our desperate need for Jesus. If we refuse to do the hard work of self-awareness and let Jesus touch the other 9% of who we are, we will find ourselves emotionally, spiritually stuck and we'll just go through the routines week after week after week after week. We can continue to act like everything is okay and maybe for a while things might go great. But if you don't deal with what's inside of you, the right amount of stress, the right amount of temptation, the right amount of fear, the right amount of anger will eventually reveal what's inside of you. I can illustrate this with my own life. So as I mentioned earlier, I'm one of the staff members with Chi Alpha, which is our college ministry at UNI. Working in ministry can be a stressful and at times challenging career field. There are specific seasons in ministry in which we'll go long periods without having a break. Last summer, we gathered together as a team for a weekend retreat in which we essentially could grow closer, get to know each other more, go through some development material, and cast vision for just the following year and what God wanted to do. During one of these sessions, Pastor Daniel 
was reflecting on a previous season in which the Chi Alpha team experienced just a, a, a huge amount of burnout. He asked the question, when you are squeezed, meaning when you find yourself in a corner, when you feel the pressure of life, what flows out of you? He then began to show us and help us to see that during a previous season, in November of the year before that, in this season of immense pressure and fatigue, our true nature began to manifest itself. So for me personally, what was inside of me began to show. During that season, I was not abiding with Jesus as much as I should have been. Often I would read the Bible out of obligation, and I was constantly tired, so I would get through it, and I would just say, well, I did it, so that's great, and I move on. I constantly became irritated. I found myself dreading to do any kind of ministry. Anytime that we would have an event, I would just show up, and I would just be instantly ticked off. <laughs> Anytime I had a responsibility that would show up on my calendar, I was just furious and upset. I became short with people. I often acted out of frustration and anger. And if I'm being real with you and if I'm being honest with you, during that season, I damaged so many different relationships. If you don't know the way that Chi Alpha works is we have small group leaders and then we have resource leaders. And resource leaders are essentially supposed to be in charge of these small group leaders and help mentor them and guide them. During that season, our meetings, so I would meet with the guys you know, every other couple of weeks or something like that. I would just sit in front of them and I would tell them all the ways that they made me mad. Whether the past couple of weeks or whatever it was. It was supposed to be a, a, an intentional conversation. Let's talk about your spiritual walk with Jesus, how small group going, but instead it was constantly me just challenging them and pushing them. It was just a season of frustration and stress. Previous to that season, so right before that, I had let myself believe that I was awesome. <laughs> I was great. It was my first year as a full-time staff member. I had just gotten married in the spring. Our financial support as missionaries had gone up. Life was just awesome. I let myself get so prideful during that season that I almost stopped pushing and looking to go deeper with Jesus. Everything seemed to go great until I found myself under immense pressure. Had I been aware of what was truly happening in my heart, what was actually going down deep below, or what I was actually feeling, I could have handled that season of life better. And I could have prevented the hurt and damage that I caused. The question I want to ask this morning is what will come out of you when you get squeezed? What will be revealed when you find yourself in a corner? What side of you will people discover when you run out of options? It's a hard question, right? So I know that we've covered a lot of information. How do we practically apply all this? I know this is a lot of just stuff in theory. The first thing is we have to dive into Scripture. We have to. Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Man, I love that verse. Essentially, the Bible or the Word of God is not just this document or book that we can read and just move on from. It's living and breathing to this day, and it has stood the test of time. 
the more that we read it, the more that it begins to read us. It helps us not to only stand a little bit more about God's character and what we should think about him, but it also helps us to discern what he thinks about us. The Bible is the primary way that Jesus speaks to us now and how we can find solid, objective truth. The beauty is that the word of God, it doesn't ever grow stale. It doesn't ever grow useless because it speaks to us in different seasons and in different aspects of life. And with this, the most important part of reading scripture, the most important part, is making sure that we read it in a systematic and consistent way. If we constantly jump around or pick and, pick and choose specific parts of the Bible, we miss out on what it's actually saying or we take certain things out of context. I encourage you, please, please, find a plan that works for you. And stick with it. Don't start it for a week and then drop it the next. To take it one step further, if you are in this place and you have been walking with Jesus for some time now, I encourage and I challenge you to read through the Bible every single year. The entire thing. I know it seems like this daunting task, but if you find the right plan, if you find what works for you and some accountability, it's possible. I promise that once you do that, it'll change your life. If you constantly just immerse yourself in scripture, it will change your life. It's not gonna be an overnight thing where you read one verse and the next night, the next day, you're just amazing. It doesn't work that way. It slowly chips away the rough edges. It slowly transforms who you are. Movies only make sense when we watch the whole thing. It's pretty dumb if we just look at the one same scene over and over and over and over again, expecting to get something different, right? It doesn't work that way. You have to know the whole movie for it to impact you. One other practical thing we can do is immerse ourselves into community and invite others into our lives. As I mentioned earlier, when we were talking about the shadow side, it sometimes blinds us and, it com and we're completely unaware of how we need Jesus. So we need people in our lives to be able to push back on what we're thinking. The reality is that we don't always have an objective view of ourselves and of Jesus. So we need people who can help us discern our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions. We need to have people in our lives who can push on us and at the same time hold us accountable. We need people who can ask the hard questions in life and to maybe cut through lies when we aren't seeing the truth. Proverbs 27, 5, 6 says this, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. I encourage you, find someone this, this week that you trust and follows Jesus, that's the other key part, and ask them questions like, what areas do I need to grow in? Am I doing anything that is dishonoring to Jesus? From your point of view, how am I doing as a follower of Jesus, as a spouse, as a parent? Is there anything you've noticed about me or my life that is concerning? I promise you it's not going to be fun. I promise you. But sometimes we have to hear hard truths. But having a community and fellow believers, it's an amazing gift from God. God has blessed us with this church. God has given us this unique gift 
right? So let's take advantage of it. Let's use whatever resources and tools we have that are available to us to grow as followers of Jesus and mature into healthy human beings. When it comes to actual self-awareness, one of the greatest tools that you can do is reflective prayer. This type of prayer is a great tool to help you reflect on your day, and it also helps you prepare for the next day. It's a prayer that's usually done at some point at the end of the day, and it's when you take just a few minutes, 15 to 20 minutes, to spend in God's presence, which is good, and then meditate on your day. The, good, the goal is to think about both the good and the bad parts of your day so that you can express gratitude, but also process through hardship. This is also a time for you to reflect on your emotional health, meaning you take time to process what you felt throughout the day and why. So for the good things, the, the parts that you want to be grateful for, ask questions like, what happened today that I'm thankful for? How did God move in my life today? What kinds of things that happened today brought me joy? What were some prayers that I saw being answered? For the negative parts of the day, ask things like, what happened today that caused me to be angry or frustrated? What did I do today that pushed me further away from Jesus? What kinds of things am I sad about? What kinds of things are causing me anxiety? A bigger one, in what ways did I grieve the Holy Spirit today? All of these questions will bring up so many things throughout the day that you sometimes will go through and you'll just forget because life happens throughout the day, right? You move on from one task to the next, the next, the next. You're with your family. All of these things can just become one big blur. But when we spend time to actually sit down and think, God, reveal to me what happens throughout the day, you can learn and you can grow from it. So our main idea for this morning is Jesus wants to form our inner life. Jesus wants to form the 90% beneath the surface. I want to close this morning by sharing one last story from my own life. So when I was, so when I was a freshman here at UNI, I got more involved with Chi Alpha, and I began to kind of start this upwards trajectory in my faith and walk with Jesus. I started having real passion for Jesus, and I began to learn what it means to actually follow Jesus. Around October, November of that year, I felt God speak to me that I would face a difficult challenge and that I was going to suffer. In a matter of days, I constantly read passages about people suffering or going through trials. I heard several messages in a span of a few days about God refining people through fire. And I was constantly reminded about those times, those messages as I was praying, as I was just going throughout the day. Those ideas just wouldn't leave my mind. It just stuck with me. A few months later, I met a girl. At the time, it seemed like everything was perfect and it was written in the stars that we were supposed to be together. It seemed like everything in my life was finally going to come full swing but the truth is that I was about to enter the hardest season of my life. Not long after we started dating, we began crossing sexual boundaries. And we would lie to it about our leaders and our friends who were there asking us those hard questions. At the same time, I was battling a decade-long pornography addiction that had lasted more than a decade. And it got worse during our relationship. 
we constantly were fighting with each other. We were constantly hurting each other. It was a toxic atmosphere. And during that season, I took my eyes off of Jesus. And everything that I had told him, all of these promises that I made, all these times that I said, Jesus, I will follow you, though others fall away, I won't. All of that, out the window. After, after some time, the relationship ended and I hit rock bottom. I mean, I hit rock bottom. The truth of, of our relationship, it all came out. Everything came crashing right in front of me. In that season, everything was stripped away to what I held dearly. My roles, my titles, my pride, my facade, all of it came crashing down. And then I began this several month long journey of reconciliation and healing. And it was after several months after the whole incident happened, I was reminded of my freshman year. And then it was as if a movie was playing right in front of my life. Everything started to fall into place. On the outside, freshman Victor was great and on fire for Jesus. But deep down inside, I had major pride issues and image issues. I had a tendency to hide things and put up this facade of being the perfect church kid. I had issues with learning how to be graceful and to forgive people. I had severe sexual addictions that needed to be dealt with. And I was just in denial. I was just lying to myself. Now, I have to clarify something before I move on. I wholeheartedly believe that God had a much better plan for me, an ideal plan. I could have listened to the Holy Spirit and broke off the relationship or not gotten into it in the first place. And God at some point or another would have worked out the rough edges one way or another. But that's the beauty of God's grace and mercy. Because even though I gave into temptation, even though I refused to deal with what was inside, even though I was running away from God, God turned what the animal, enemy meant for evil and he turned it for good. And I want to read a passage from the Gospel of Luke. It's, it's the same story, but with different details or different aspects. But listen to this. So Luke twenty two thirty one, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And as I was preparing for this message and I read that, I could feel the tears swell up in my eyes because I read it this way. Victor, Victor, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, that he might make you walk away from your faith, that he might make you give up and take your eyes off of me. But I have prayed for you I have interceded for you. I have gone to the Father for you so that your faith won't fail. And when you have turned again, when you come back to your senses, when you come running back to me, and when you come back into my arms, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen the you and I students who will come after you. Strengthen those at sent church who can't see the reality. 
That's what Jesus does. If you're new in this place, Jesus died on a cross for you. He interceded for you on your behalf. He went to the Father and said, no, 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 no. They're mine. Jesus' cross, his his sacrifice on the cross has made it possible so that you can return. And when you come to your senses and when you walk back, you can strengthen your brothers. You can strengthen your sisters. So this morning, I want to close by just taking a few moments to reflect, asking God to help us dive deeper. I just, I really feel just, I want to sit for a moment and allow Jesus to reveal the parts of us, of ourselves that we don't know or haven't given to him. I want to read a part of a psalm together and we'll just sit for a few minutes to reflect on that and the band will play softly for just a few moments and we'll sing one last song. So you can read it out loud, you can read it quietly to yourself, but I I ask that you take some time to pray over this and reflect. Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Search me, O God. Search the deep, darkest parts of who I am and lead me the other way. Reveal to me the parts that aren't pleasing to you and lead me the other way. So let's take some time to reflect. The prayer team is going to come up and after some time, if you feel like you need to pray with someone, I encourage you to do that, please. Don't Don't give up on this moment. Don't forget this moment. So let's take some time to reflect.